Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to The Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, Gary Massey. Gary's the founder of Massey & Company CPA based in Atlanta. He has over 30 years of experience in tax preparation, tax planning, and IRS and state tax problem resolution. He holds a CPA, a master's degree in accounting, and a master's degree in business administration with a specialization in taxation. Gary's also a certified tax representation consultant. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk about taxes, and I know that can encompass a lot of things, and we'll, we'll talk about some different areas of, of taxes. I think it's on a lot of people's minds, especially since the extension deadline just passed. So I guess, I, you know, I know we'll talk about businesses, um, but before we get into that, maybe let's talk about individuals, because like I said, the, the extension deadline just passed. What are some strategies that people are using to minimize their tax bill or to, I guess, optimize, let's say? Sure, Mark. There there are a couple things we could talk about. Some of the more traditional ways of, of reducing taxes, uh, such as, for example, giving more charitable contributions. That creates deductions, which will lower taxes, and also maximizing retirement plans. If you have a 401k at work or an IRA or a Roth, you can give more to that, give the most that you can. That's a great way to both save for retirement and reduce taxes. But what I find to be particularly powerful for individuals is when they get involved in some kind of side gig or, for example, real estate. That's when they start to really generate significant tax deductions, and that can really bring down taxes. So that's kind of the uh, secret sauce, I think, for individuals who want to bring down taxes. Yeah, so I guess if you're a regular W-2 employee, you know, you have some options, but it's not until you – either whether it's, you know, being an entrepreneur, starting a business, having a side gig – um, or like you just mentioned, investing in, in real estate. So let's talk about that entrepreneur, that business owner. What are some of the things that they're doing now? So the reason why I like to encourage people to get into some kind of a business, it could be a side gig, which is in addition to their regular work, or it could be like investing in real estate. All of those activities bring with them a lot of tax deductions, lots of tax benefits. So I'll give you some examples. This would apply both to a business owner as well as to someone who has a side gig. So for example, if you're doing real estate, there's something called cost segregation, which is a way to maximize deductions for real estate. That's very powerful for anybody who's in real estate. There is entity choice. First of all, it's very important to create some kind of an entity for your business, be it a side gig or real estate or company or whatever. So you can put some thought and one should put some thought into the right entity because the entity can make a very big difference. And one of my favorites is the S corporation that can save a lot of money in payroll taxes. So I find that to be very, very powerful. Uh, some other ideas, you can hire your children to work in the business. You could have your wife or your, or your parents or some other family member. That's a way of shifting income through the family. 
Other things that I've seen to be very powerful is the the HRA, which is the health reimbursement arrangement. Uh, I personally have one, and I find that to be very powerful as far as saving on taxes. And then the last thing I want to mention for the business owner is retirement planning. So you can do much more retirement planning when you own your own business. You'd be surprised how much you, you can put away on an annual basis. And typically, I would do this in cooperation, in conjunction with a with a financial planner. I would do the tax side, and he or she would do the financial planning side. And it's really amazing how much they're able to, to put away on a pre-tax basis, which really brings down both taxes and helps them save for the future. And is that, I guess, using like a 401k or a SEP or even like a cash balance pension plan? Exactly. You, they can put away so much money. It's really amazing. It's very, very powerful. Even if you hire kids, you can hire a kid and, and then you can, once you're paying that child to work in your business, he or she can have a retirement plan also. It just starts building family wealth. And I, I find it to be very, very powerful. Now, you mentioned S-Corp. When does it make sense to use an LLC versus an S-Corp? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Mark. So what I usually tell people is start with an LLC. First of all, it's important to have something. The reason that you have an entity, which is what the LLC is, is that it protects you in case anybody ever sues you. The LLC itself is not going to save you on, on taxes, but it will help you in case you're ever sued in court. It creates limited liability. That's what it is. It's a limited liability company, which means if you're in a lawsuit, they can only go after the assets that are held by the LLC, not your other stuff outside of the LLC. And the LLC is very easy to set up and very inexpensive. It does not require a separate tax return. It's filed on, on Schedule C of your personal return. So it's it's relatively easy to manage. The accounting is relatively simple. It's inexpensive to set up and to administer. However, once your income reaches a certain level, and I usually say when your income, your net income after expenses is about $50,000, it's usually worth it to make an election to convert your LLC into an S corporation. This is done for, for tax purposes only, and it usually saves a lot of money. So once you're over about $50,000, then you can put yourself on payroll and you divide your revenue from the business between payroll on the one hand and distributions on the other. And the piece which is related to the distribution is going to be exempt from uh, payroll taxes. So you end up saving quite a lot of money. Does it change a little bit if the business is a re like a real estate investor? Because one of the things you hear a lot is, oh, with the real estate, go with the LLC versus the S-Corp. Right. Real estate doesn't matter for, for the for the S-Corp. It, it, it doesn't give you any additional benefits. If you own some kind of a real estate, you should put it into an LLC. That's the best way to do it. There's a question, should you have one LLC or multiple LLCs? And uh, that's a question of how much risk you'd like to take. Because remember, we said before that if you're sued, somebody could go after the assets that are in the LLC. So if you have multiple pieces of real estate, there is a potential risk associated with that, that someone could go after all the real estate in your LLC. So some people have separate LLCs for each piece of real estate, but that's up to you. Now, we're, we're talking mostly about income taxes here. What should business owners think about when it comes to sales tax? That's a, a terrific question. Sales tax is a very hot issue in our practice because the states are very aggressive about sales tax. 
sales that are subject to sales tax, that group of sales is just getting broader and broader and broader, and it's impacting so many businesses. It generally, generally does not apply to services. Like, for example, I do accounting. So there are very few states, if any, that will put a sales tax on doing tax returns. However, if you're in the business of providing some kind of a product, not a service, but a product. You'll see it, of course, if you own a restaurant or if you have a have a store like a jewelry store or whatever, you're going to be charging sales taxes. If it's a brick and mortar, you're certainly charging sales tax, which means that it gets added on to what the customer pays you. And then you have to submit it typically monthly to the state. But where it's a real problem is when you start shipping out of state or you have offices or warehouses or inventory or personnel or contractors in other states, it can start triggering a sales tax liability in those other states. So uh, e-commerce is a very common problem about sales tax for e-commerce. We see it all the time. So you could be based, like for example, I'm based here in Georgia, and you could be shipping out to other states. It could be that you have a sales tax obligation, and you don't want to be in a position where the state is going to come after you for back sales taxes that you never collected. Are they filing returns in each state that they're selling to, or is it? It, it depends. The, the important thing to know about sales taxes is that every state has different rules, and sometimes even the cities have different rules. So you have to know the rules in that particular state. So there's something called nexus, which nexus means the the um, involvement you have in a particular state. And there are thresholds. And when the nexus goes over a certain threshold, that creates an obligation to collect sales tax and file a sales tax return. And as I said before, every state and sometimes every city has different rules. So it is a big compliance burden to keep track of all of that. And it becomes a real issue, like we said, when you like in e-commerce or if you're an Amazon seller, that's another very common thing. If, if you're an Amazon seller and you have inventory in Amazon warehouses, it could create nexus, which means that you have a sales tax obligation in that state. So you have to check. It's not easy and you don't want to be stuck if the state ever comes calling. And is that, I guess, how one of the things that you help with in an engagement with someone is kind of figure out what their liability is in each of the states that they are doing business in? Yes, exactly. We do what's called a nexus study, and we figure out where they should be charging their customer sales tax. It's very important. And as, as I said, if you're if you're ever the subject of a sales tax audit, that's that's unpleasant. You know, there are income tax audits and sales tax audits, two two different things. But the sales tax audits can be very aggressive. As, as we said, there are many states and it, it can create a, a big mess for someone who's doing interstate sales, shipping out of state, going into other states, doing business. Uh, so that's something that you really want to be careful about. And I guess speaking about audits and on the income tax side, what is it like to go through an audit? What's involved in it? Well, Mark, the, the way it starts is you'll get a letter in the mail that says that you were selected for an audit. There are different kinds of audits. Some audits relate to just a missing or a mismatched 1099, for example. Like, let's say that you uh, forgot to put an income from a 1099 on your personal or even business tax return, and the IRS computers find that. They will match all the 1099s. 
and see if it is missing. And it, it may take a couple years for them to get to you, but eventually they will probably find it and they'll send you a letter. And you have to be able to prove why you are right in leaving it off. And if it was just a mistake, you're going to have to fix it, which means that you have to pay the tax on the missing income plus any interest and penalties. So that's one kind of an audit. That's the easy audit. The harder audit is when they look at your whole business activities. And they're going to go, they're going to ask for your QuickBooks files. QuickBooks, of course, is the bookkeeping and accounting software used by many small businesses. There are others. Some people use Excel uh, or spreadsheets, but it's very common to use QuickBooks. For example, that's what most of my clients do, QuickBooks Online. So they'll ask to see your, your QuickBooks general ledger, and they'll start asking for receipts. And it's the receipts that are really going to hurt you. If you're missing receipts, you can lose on an audit which means that if you can't pull out a receipt which proves that your expenses are legitimate business expenses, then they will disallow it. General, That's what the most probable thing to happen is. So what I tell my clients is if you want to audit-proof your business, there are two things that you have to do. Number one, you have to have receipts. You can take pictures of the receipts with a, with a, with a cell phone. You don't have to keep all, all the paper around. But have a picture of the receipt if you have meals, for example, write on the receipt who you went out to eat with and what was the business purpose of that discussion. Another very common occurrence today is people buy on Amazon all kinds of stuff. It's not enough just to show a credit card receipt that you bought something on, on Amazon. That's not enough because it could be personal or it could be business. So keep the receipt that shows what you bought. I'm telling you, the IRS is going to ask for it. The other thing that's really important to stay out of tax trouble when it comes to an audit is to be able to have a clean set of accounting records, clean books. So what they'll ask for is your general ledger from your accounting software. They'll ask for a P&L, which is your um, profit and loss report on income or an income statement, a balance sheet. There are different ways of saying the same thing. It's basically the financial statements generated by your accounting records. Now, Mark, I see many, many businesses who don't have that, and they don't keep up with their accounting and bookkeeping, and they get behind, and the further behind you get, the more difficult it is to fix. So what I, I tell people is keep up with it every month. Do it yourself if you're, if you're good at it, or have somebody reconcile your account. Today, it's a bit of an old-fashioned term, but reconciling means comparing what's in your QuickBooks, for example, to what's in your bank account making sure that it's right, that it makes sense, that you can explain what, what the differences are. And if you reconcile it and you make sure that everything is categorized properly as legitimate business expenses and in the right category, then if the government comes asking, you can explain it. And if you have receipts and you have a good set of books, clean books, that will pretty much make you audit-proof. And hopefully you'll be able to walk away from that audit without any changes. That's what we try for for all of our clients. What happens in the event that, let's say someone does go through an audit and they have some of their business expenses disallowed, or even probably what happens more commonly is when, you know, especially like a business owner who, you know, if you're W-2, you're, you're having taxes withheld. But if you're a business owner, you're responsible for quarterly estimated payments. Some people do, some people do not, but they get to the end of the year and, you know, they may have a pretty high tax bill that they owe. Uh, but they might not have the money available. What are their options on that side? Well, this is such a common situation that you're asking me about, especially for people who own a business. 
If you're an employee, you probably have withholding. But if you own a business, as you said, Mark, you have to pay taxes quarterly. That's what you're supposed to do. If you don't, the government is going to charge you some interest and penalties for not doing that. People who, who don't pay their taxes quarterly end up with a big tax bill come April 15th or if they're on extension, October 15th. So those people tend to owe a lot of taxes. So what do they do? Most important thing is if you feel that you can't pay your taxes, file the tax return anyways, and the government is going to bill you later. You want to file the return for a number of reasons. It starts the statute of limitations on when the government can audit you, number one. There's also a collection statute of limitations, which is 10 years, how long they can go after you to collect the money. All that begins with when the return is filed. So that's number one. By filing the return, it also protects you from a late filing penalty, which can be very substantial. So what will happen, you, you file the return with an amount due, but you don't pay it. So the government is going to send you a bill. And then periodically, every couple of weeks, they'll continue to send you bills and they'll get increasingly more insistent and more threatening that you have to pay the bill. So at that point along the way, you should get some kind of a payment arrangement. And there are different payment arrangements that are available to the taxpayer. There are, for example, installment agreements. They can do an offer and compromise. And there's a status called currently not collectible for people who can't afford to pay the tax. These are types of tax relief that are available to the taxpayer, and they're all there for you. Some of the plans are very good. You mentioned offer and compromise. What, uh, how does that work? The offer and compromise is something that people ask us about quite a lot. Uh, it's advertised on late night TV where you pay pennies on the dollar. It's a real program, and we do it for, for our clients a lot. It's a great program. But the thing to know is that it is based on your income, your expenses, and your assets, and your liabilities. So we would go through a uh, very detailed calculation based on these four things, income, expenses, assets, and liabilities, based upon a formula that the IRS provides. And this allows us to determine, based on IRS regulations, what the IRS feels that, that you can afford. And if you qualify according to those calculations, then you'll qualify for an offer and compromise which means that the calculation will result in a in a number that you're expected to pay. And once you pay that, which is going to be less than the full dollar amount of, of the tax owed, then everything else is just going to go away. So if you qualify for it, it is a great deal. And I guess, do you, do you know right away if you qualify? Well, I don't prepare an offer and compromise if I feel that they're not going to qualify. So uh, that's part of my job to determine if they qualify and what I feel that they're able to pay based on the IRS uh, rules and regulations. But you won't get the answer immediately. It'll be submitted. And then after a, a period of time, you'll, you'll get a letter in the mail saying if it was accepted or not. Okay. Uh, shifting back towards individuals. One thing I see common now are people going through divorces. What are some things that uh, you know, someone going through a divorce can t do to protect themselves with respect to their taxes? Great question. The most important subject that I can say about divorces uh, before the divorce, if you file what's called married filing jointly, a married filing joint return is typically the best way to file a return. It's done probably by 95% of my clients. And the reason it's done is that the amount of tax that you owe is almost always the lowest from all the other ways of filing a return. So it's a great idea. However, when you file a joint return, 
there's joint liability. It's very important. It's called joint and several liability. That means if you ever get divorced or if anything should come up where one of the spouses feels that it's unjust for them to pay portion of the tax, both spouses are going to be held liable. So you should know that when you go into a marriage or when you sign a tax return that's joint, that you are jointly liable on that return. There are a few ways of getting out of it. There's a program called Innocent Spouse Relief. If one of the spouses can prove that that they didn't know about it, that they had no way of knowing about it, and that, that they should not be held responsible, we can petition the IRS for Innocent Spouse Relief. And that works sometimes. Uh, but generally speaking, a married couple where they file jointly is going to be jointly liable on that tax. So that's something to always bear in mind. Okay. Um, well, we're just about out of time. Uh, Gary, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today and providing your expertise on taxes. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work at Massey & Company CPA or get in contact with you? Okay, I'd be happy to help. We we have a website, of course. It's called uh, com. It's all spelled out. My email address and the our office telephone number is, is in the show notes. They're welcome to email me directly or call the office, and we're always happy to help. We are based in Atlanta, but we work with clients throughout the United States. And in fact, we have clients throughout the world, uh, especially people who want to do business in the United States or they're going through the immigration process. Uh, we have a uh, blog that also has lots of articles that I've written myself personally on all kinds of tax issues. You might find it useful, but uh, I am here for you and my, my team is here and we're always happy to, to have a chat about tax issues. Great. We'll link to all those resources in the show notes. Thanks again, Gary. And thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. Don't forget to follow the Agent of Wealth on the platform you listen from and leave us a review of the show. We're currently accepting new clients, and if you'd like to schedule a one-on-one consultation with our advisors, please do so at bowdasfinancial.com backslash call. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Bowdas Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.